2: How do you raise a man? I'm Sean Illing, and I'm your host for Vox Conversations. A few weeks ago, we invited Michael Ian Black onto the show to talk about his latest book, A Better Man. Black is a comedian and a writer and an actor who you likely know from his roles in Wet Hot American Summer, The State, and Stella. His book is an open letter to his son, and it's the kind of thing only a thoughtful comic could write. It's always walking the line between funny and serious, and it never strays too far from its core purpose, which is Black's attempt to talk to his son about what it means to be a good man in a culture that seems very confused about masculinity. Michael's son was a student at an elementary school right by Sandy Hook when that massacre happened in 2012. And then there was the Parkland shooting in 2018. That's when Black decided to write this book and ask, why are boys committing these acts of violence? And what are fathers of boys supposed to do. A few days before we recorded, 19 children and two teachers were gunned down in yet another mass shooting by a young man in Uvalde, Texas. There are, of course, lots of practical, policy-centered conversations happening now about gun control, about the Second Amendment, about congressional inaction. This is not one of those. Instead, Black and I step back and try to reflect on a bigger question. What the hell is going on with young men in America? We obviously deal head-on with the recent tragedy in Texas. But we also talk about our own struggles to define masculinity. Why so many American men have such a hard time asking for help. And how we, as fathers of boys, can be better examples for our sons. Michael Ian Black, welcome to the show. Thank you. So, I had an idea of what this conversation would be like, Michael. But then a few days ago, 19 children and two teachers were gunned down in yet another School shooting, and you spent a lot of time at the beginning of the book lingering on this plague of young boys and mass shootings. And here we are again. This is obviously something you thought a lot about. Where's your head right now? What do you make of all of this at this moment?
3: Well, I'm not surprised that this happened. I'm not surprised that there was uh, another shooting at an elementary school. Just as I wasn't surprised when there was a shooting at a grocery store the week before and at a church a few days before that. These events no longer surprise me in any way, shape, or form. They continue to outrage me because we're not doing anything about it. We're debating doors today. Or I'm not, but at least a significant portion of one half of our political body is. I don't feel like doors are the problem. I feel like I'm okay with doors. In fact, I'll go even further. I'll say the more doors, the better. I'm willing to go all in for doors. What I'm not willing to do is go all in for guns and this kind of insane weaponry that we just make available to whoever wants it now i understand that there are certain restrictions on quickly acquiring weaponry in some parts of the country not in texas where the governor just signed a bill a few months ago saying hey if you're 18 you want to buy a weapon of war go ahead we're not going to throw up any roadblocks to impede your progress on your journey to a massacre we're texas we want you to have as many guns and ammunition as you wish so i'm sick of talking about guns and i feel like i would be talking about them a lot less if fewer people were getting shot by them
2: did the experience with sandy hook not just the horror itself but your proximity to it did it change how you thought about fatherhood?
3: So I was living in Connecticut, less than 10 miles from Sandy Hook Elementary School. My kids were in elementary school at that time. I don't think it affected my vision of fatherhood. It certainly radicalized me against the gun manufacturers and lobbyists and the NRA. I will say from a fatherhood point of view, I definitely felt like when my kids got home that day and my wife and I talked to them about what had happened in somewhat simple language, saying something bad happened at a school nearby. Some kids were hurt, but you're okay. You're safe. I definitely recall feeling like I was lying to them. Definitely felt like I was saying reassuring words that I didn't know to be true why would I think they would be true in that moment when 20 kids had just been killed right next door? And I certainly was never one of those people who said it could never happen here. I always thought it could happen anywhere, at least anywhere in the United States of America. But, you know, living so close to it and understanding in a more intimate way that these events don't end when the gunman stops pulling the trigger. The impact on the lives and on the community is indefinite. I feel like it was maybe a year ago, maybe two years ago, when one of the fathers of one of the Sandy Hook victims killed himself. This thing doesn't stop. When somebody gets shot, if they don't die from their injuries, a lot of times these injuries affect them for the rest of their lives. If not physically, psychologically, it affects their family members, their friends, their communities. We don't do anything about it. We're fine with it. We're basically saying this is a price we're willing to pay for what? For what? I understand it's built into the Constitution. I understand that we have a Second Amendment. I also understand that we can place limits on rights and have done so repeatedly across our history.
2: Why are boys, and it's almost exclusively boys, committing these acts of mass violence i mean what the hell is going on here and maybe that's an almost impossible question to answer i get that but you do say in the book that you think you understand how a certain kind of masculinity in your words can nudge a teetering psyche toward violence what do you have in mind there
3: it is true that these acts are committed almost exclusively by boys and young men off the top of my head, I can think of none that have been committed by women. It's not to say that there haven't been, but I certainly can't think of any. Why is a complicated, as anybody would know, question? You have to maybe take a step back to even begin to answer that question because it's not just shootings. It's violence of all kinds that is overwhelmingly committed by boys. So why is that? What is it about being a guy that makes us prone to commit acts of violence? The first thing you have to do, I think, is break it down into two categories. Is there something biological that impels boys to commit violence? And is there something sociological that compels boys to commit violence? The answer to the first question is, I think, yes, I think there is something biological. I think we understand that testosterone does, in fact, lead towards more aggression. It doesn't necessarily follow that because you have more testosterone in your body that you're going to commit acts of violence. And in fact, so much of our culture, all cultures, are organized around trying to control aggression. That's maybe what culture is in some ways. Sociologically speaking, that's where I think the nuance comes into it. And that's where I think we have to take deep, deep dive into what it means to be
2: a man in the culture. So much of your letter, and that's what your book is, it's a letter to your son, is about the inability of boys and men to open up, Mm -hmm. And that means so much of who we really are remains buried and unarticulated, and that makes a person feel unheard and unseen. And we see time and again, and even now in the case of this Texas shooter, that part of the motivation is some perverse attempt to be remembered, to leave some kind of mark. It's why they write manifestos. It's why these people live stream their killings. It's why they post their shit on 4chan. How do you make sense of that deep need for posterity or whatever?
3: I've stopped paying attention to motivations altogether. Yeah. I don't care what your motivation is. That's not to dismiss it entirely because I think you're right. I think there's trends that you can see. But I think your first point is also correct that so much of what it means to be a guy historically has been about never admitting weakness, never admitting... Fear, never admitting vulnerability, and not having the tools or the vocabulary to open up. Generally, there's kind of two acceptable emotional reactions for a lot of guys, and that's anger and withdrawal. And I think we see in a lot of these shooters both of those things happening anger and withdrawal. When you see somebody say, Oh, he was a quiet kid, he was so quiet. Well, yeah, what do you think that is? That's somebody retreating into themselves because they don't know how to ask for help. They don't know how to communicate. They don't know how to receive or express empathy. And yet there's clearly something broken with these dudes. And so that's why so many politicians go, well, he was crazy. This is just a lone wolf. He's crazy. Yeah, he's crazy. Okay. We can write off all the mass shooters as crazy and just dismiss them. So you want to dismiss all the mass shooters as crazy? Go ahead. But they're not the problem. It's the day-to-day gun violence. It is the domestic violence. It is the suicides. It is the accidental discharges. It's the easy access to firearms. It's the family disputes. It's retaliatory gunfire when somebody feels dissed. It's all this bullshit. And to that, we got to look at how we're raising boys and what you said is right. They don't know how to express themselves. And one easy way to do it is with a gun.
2: And it's not just that, right? I mean, you talk in the book about how some of this, there's this desire to destroy oneself in the world. And that requires like an extreme level of Mm self-importance and arrogance. And to me, it's also about living in this very hollow society where a lot of people don't have any deep roots in any real community. So A lot of us, especially boys, live in our heads. We live in the virtual world. And that breeds this homicidal loneliness and narcissism. And I don't want to excuse the nihilism and the psychopathy driving these mass killings. I mean, that's obviously going on. But there's just no doubt that in a lot of these cases, there is this history of loneliness and estrangement and resentment that builds and builds. And the trajectories of some of these boys surely could have been altered along the way. And there are so many young men who haven't yet erupted, but who are exploding in slow motion and their inner turmoil is hidden and maybe inexpressible. And we just keep paying the price for it with the blood of innocent people, of innocent children. And it's just, I don't know what to do about it. Yeah, I really don't. Well, you're right.
3: I mean, I think lack of community is a big part of it which ties into lack of purpose, which ties into lack of self-identity. It's why when you start talking about this stuff, like it's a very, very deep conversation and it gets to the heart of a lot of things that are wrong, not only in our country, but in the world, the problems of identity, community, purpose. I think those are, are probably consistent in much of the world. In our little corner of the world, yeah, it's, it's endemic and it seems to be worse with boys and part of that has to do i think with us not having the vocabulary and the tools to express ourselves in constructive meaningful and vulnerable ways that's partially what this book is
2: about you talk about how you spend a lot of years hiding under the armor of your sarcasm and withdrawal Mm -hmm. and i relate to that a lot though in my case it's not humor i mean i'm (laughs) i'm not funny enough. For me, it was probably more like false bravado. And there was probably even a period in my life where I was like almost feigning like sociopathic indifference to some kind of like a way of pretending like nothing got to me. And I was probably really emotionally stunted for a very long time. Maybe I still am in some ways. Mm -hmm. Did you feel like your identity as a detached kind of sarcastic comic was keeping you tethered to a version of yourself that you wanted to leave behind, not just for you, but for your kids?
3: Yeah. To the extent that I became well-known, it was probably for being this sort of deadpan, sarcastic comedian who could riff fairly effectively on Cabbage Patch Kids. And that was fine. And it was remunerative. And I could have kept doing that. But while I was having you know some success with that, I was also married. I was also becoming a father. And I felt like there was a growing disconnect between who I was professionally and who I wanted to be personally. I didn't want to be detached from my life. I didn't want to be detached from my wife and from my kids. And it's not like that deadpan sarcasm came out of left field. I mean, that's how I went through my life. Not entirely. I wasn't a caricature. But it was my go-to defense mechanism. And I recognized that I didn't want to have this chasm between who I was personally and who I was professionally. And so something had to give. And I made a conscious decision that I was going to try to open up both in my personal life and in my professional life so that I could be mostly the father that I wanted to be.
2: I want to tie this back to this idea of masculinity toxic masculinity in particular which is a recurring theme in the book partly because of where i grew up in the south how i grew up there is something i think pretty deep in me that reflexively balks at some of this talk about toxic masculinity and this question of vulnerability and toughness is such a hard one for me and you made me think about My own father, who I love dearly, who is still a very huge part of my life. But you know, he was very much a product of that kind of old school army of one mentality where toughness is almost by definition the opposite of vulnerability. And I'm probably internalized a ton of that. It's part of me forever, but it can be a real handicap at times. Why do you think vulnerability is so important? I love this line that you have in your son where you say, Your vulnerabilities reveal you, let them.
3: I understand why a lot of men recoil from thinking too deeply about their own masculinity. They recoil from the term toxic masculinity. And it's because toxic masculinity in some ways has become a catch-all phrase that just sometimes means masculinity. And masculinity isn't toxic. There's so much about what men have historically done that's great. There's a lot that's great about being strong and being tough and enduring tough times and keeping a stiff upper lip. There's a lot that's awesome about that. We need that and we should celebrate it. However, there are times in everybody's life when being an army of one isn't particularly constructive. There's a reason that armies, when they train, They don't train you to be an army of one. They train you to work as a cohesive unit. It's because you rely on each other to get shit done. You need to rely on each other to get shit done. So absolutely be tough, but there's going to be moments where you're going to need help. And it requires a lot of self-confidence and toughness to say, I need help in this moment. It is one thing to be tough when you are fully armored up. And that's the way so many guys go through life, just fully armored up. It requires a whole other level of toughness to take off the armor and to just stand there naked. That requires a lot of strength to be able to do that. Those are your vulnerabilities. And if you can survive that, being sort of naked and vulnerable, and live in your own strength in that moment, you're only going to make yourself more powerful. There's a flip side to this, which is, men, I feel like, are romantic in a lot of ways. Like, we have romantic ideas about our solitude. We have romantic ideas about going off to fight battles. We have romantic ideas about love. I don't think it's hard for men to give love. I think men enjoy giving love, and that we're pretty good at it, where I think we fall to, where I think men come up short is receiving love. And it's for the same reason, because to receive love, you have to let down your guard. You have to be vulnerable in order to fully receive somebody's love. So if you're willing to give love and you understand the gift, the profound gift that you're giving to somebody when you give them your love, Why would you then turn around and deny them the ability to give their love? Why would you keep your guard up when somebody's trying to get in, somebody that you profess to love, whether it's your spouse, whether it's your children, whoever it is? It takes a lot of strength to let down that armor and receive love. And I like to frame masculinity in those terms, in terms that we're already familiar with. Strength, toughness, endurance.
2: Let me read a quote from your book real quick, if you don't mind. You write, "'Men feel isolated, confused, and conflicted about our own natures. Many feel that the very qualities that used to define men, strength, aggression, and independence are no longer wanted or needed. Many others never felt strong or aggressive or independent to begin with. We don't know how to be, and we're terrified." End quote. There's a lot going on there. And I'm not entirely sure what I think about it. There are definitely dueling pressures for men today to be both assertive and confident and also sensitive and empathetic. And while I do think those are mutually compatible, I know you think the confusion here is harmful. It is. Why is that? I
3: like to think of it like this. 50 years ago, if you talked about a girl or a woman, and you talked about her as being a strong, independent, tough woman, you would have thought of her in some ways as being less feminine because of those attributes. But we don't think of girls that way anymore. In fact, we celebrate their strength. We celebrate their independence. We celebrate their toughness because we understand That in elevating those parts of their personalities, we are not diminishing the other parts of their personalities that are more traditionally feminine. There's no reason we can't expand the definition of masculinity the same way we have with femininity. The conversations with girls that have been going on for the past 50 years, 60 years, those conversations have yielded tremendous results. We see women entering all facets of society. It has not meant that they can't be wives and mothers as well, if that's what they choose to be. We've seen how girls are just thriving as a result of these conversations, these generational conversations. And we applaud it, rightly. Well, it's time to have those same conversations with boys. And again, they're generational conversations. This isn't shit that's just going to change overnight, but it's stuff that we have to start addressing, not only because of the gun violence problem, but because of every other problem that's going on in the culture. A lot of men feel adrift. They feel lost. They don't know who they are. They don't know what their place is. And I'm saying there are ways to lift men and boys up and to give them a renewed sense of purpose in the culture. And that purpose can involve all of the traditional attributes that men have. It can involve their strength and their toughness and their pride and their aggression and their endurance. And it can also involve their compassion, their natural empathy, their vulnerability, their creativity, all of it. Because ultimately what we're talking about, when we talk about boys and girls, there is not one set of characteristics that make a girl, nor is there one set of characteristics that make a boy. But there are a certain set of characteristics that make a human, and we all share them. We don't need to silo them into gender. We can say, you're a full-spectrum human being as a girl. You're a full-spectrum human being as a boy. Let's figure out a way for you to be all of yourself all of the time.
2: And it's because of that narrowness, right? Yeah. It's, it's kind of like an awful trade-off that you have to make sometimes as a young boy to fit in with other boys. You have to be alienated from your own emotional life. Mm-hmm. But the price of that emotional alienation is steep. I mean, <laughs> it's what we're talking about right now. And it's a problem with deep, deep roots. It won't be transcended overnight, that's for damn sure.
3: Yeah, and it doesn't seem like girls have to make that same kind of trade-off. The trade-off that you're talking about, I think, is, I'll use an illustration from my own life. I was one of those boys that was always referred to as sensitive. And, you know, when you're a very young boy, it's sort of okay. And then as you get a little older, it becomes a little bit demeaning. And I was sensitive. Like, I was tear-prone, you know? I would cry a lot as a boy and even into my early adolescence. And I remember very distinctly having an emotional meltdown one day in eighth grade and sobbing in a hallway and thinking to myself, you can't keep doing this. Like, this has to stop because you're going to get the shit kicked out of you. (laughs) You know, you can't be this boy. The memory I have and whether or not this is true, but it it certainly is my impression of it now is that I was able to sort of lock something away in that
2: moment. And
3: I wasn't able to unlock it for 30 years.
2: I had a lot of that in me too, but totally buried it. Mm -hmm. And, I took refuge in things like sports and stuff like that as a way to kind of escape that part of me. But as a result, the part of me that people saw was wooden and incomplete and kind of a pose. Mm -hmm. I just turned 40 and I'm like still barely starting to like kind of come to grips with some of this stuff. Yeah. It definitely arrested a lot of my emotional development and maturity for a long time. And it's not the exception. That is the norm.
3: Absolutely. That's the norm with boys just lock that shit up, you know? No. Yeah. And we see the results. We see the results.
2: We're going to take a quick break, but when we're back, why do so many men think being a man means burying their feelings?
0: Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there.
2: Support for the gray area comes from Burrow. Getting the right furniture for your place can be really annoying. At this point in my life, I've probably gone through maybe three sets of outdoor deck furniture, and it's a pain in the ass for a different reason every single time. It doesn't look like it did in the pictures, the assembly isn't what they said it was, or it's just not as advertised for whatever reason. Thankfully, Burrow is the furniture company that wants to make it all a little easier. Last year, Burrow introduced their outdoor line and this spring they're adding to it with their Dunes line, offering new seating, dining and lounger options designed for luxury, comfort and durability. Burrow furniture is easy to put together and take apart so you can move or store it as needed and it ships straight to your door for free. Great Area listeners can get 15% off their first order at burrow.com slash box. That's burrow, B-U-R-R-O-W dot com slash box for 15% off. Burrow.com slash box. In the book, you mentioned Jordan Peterson, who... I guess I'd describe as a cult psychologist. One of the things he's constantly preaching to his mostly male audience is that being a man means suffering quietly. It means keeping your feelings to yourself and just carrying on. And in the book, you describe that as an emotional tourniquet. What do you mean? Look, Jordan Peterson, I think, is a really
3: powerful figure and it's not a coincidence that his audience is all young men, because young men are looking for guidance. That's why Joe Rogan's so important in the culture. Young men are so hungry to understand how to be men. And these guys fill that need. And I don't think Jordan Peterson's entirely wrong. Yeah. yeah. People don't want to hear you constantly mewling about your pain but it's not an either or situation. There are moments when it's totally fine to release that tourniquet and let blood flow go through your limbs and feel the circulation and express yourself and talk about your pain. And guess what, when you do that, other guys will say, I'm also having that experience. And thank you for saying it, because I was feeling it too, but I didn't want to say it because Fucking Jordan Peterson is telling me never to talk about my pain. And it's easy to understand why the audience for that is so much larger than the audience for, I think, what we're talking about right now, because it reinforces what they've already been taught. It's saying to somebody like you or somebody like me, yeah, you were right to cut yourself off emotionally. That's the proper role of a man. The proper role of a man is to shut up and carry on. And I'm saying that's killing us and it's killing other people.
2: I know your father died when you were 12, and you say in the book that in some ways this is kind of your way of, of talking to him now. I mean, how did your history with your dad inform what you say to your son in this letter?
3: So, my dad. And my mom divorced when I was five, I continued to see my dad until he died. He was in our lives, but he had a hard time expressing himself. He wasn't a particularly expressive or emotive dad, like so many men of his generation and previous generations. And I have a real distinct memory of being dropped off after a weekend with him. I was in the car with my brother and my sister. And I waited for them to get out and walk up to our house. And then I said to my dad, almost embarrassed because these were not words that he had said to us, I said, I love you. And then I kind of dashed out of the car before he had a chance to respond because I felt like it might be hard for him to say it back. Not because he didn't love us, I know he loved us, but because he wasn't capable. Of expressing himself in that way. It's why, as a father now, I never stop telling my kids I love them. I tell them every time I see them, multiple times a day. And obviously, it's not enough to say it. You have to live it. I've tried to live it as a parent. One way to do that, maybe the best way to do that, is to listen to your kids, is to Give them the respect that you would give to one of your peers, treat them like they're human beings and take them seriously as people. I feel like I've tried to do that their entire lives, even when they were really little, you know, just give them respect, give them my ear, give them my shoulder when they need it. Yeah. Yeah. I haven't been perfect at it. I'm like probably an average dad. I'm probably a B, B plus dad at best, but you know. I'm doing my best.
2: You write in the book, and I'll quote you, and again, you're addressing your son. Coming to me for comfort was one of the greatest gifts you ever gave to me because it allowed me to be your dad. That resonates so much with my experience, and it connects to what we're talking about. The act of caring for my son, who's about to turn three, changing his diapers, (laughs) rocking him to sleep, taking baths with him, I don't think I've ever felt more satisfied as a man as I feel in those moments. I mean, more satisfied as a man than I'd feel wrestling a fucking alligator. (laughs) And I never would have imagined that before I became a dad. And you don't have to become a dad to have that revelation, but it was a revelation for me that I could take such joy and such pride in caring for another human being and i needed the experience of being a dad Mm -hmm. to have that maybe other people don't but i needed it it has changed me i think fundamentally i mean i still have i'm broken like everyone else i've lots of work to do but it expanded my concept of what it means to be a man and a father so
3: the thing that made you feel most paternal were the acts that are most traditionally maternal. The thing that made you feel most like a man are the things that are most commonly associated with being a woman. Why is that? I would argue that it's because it allowed you to open a door into the fullness of who you are as a person. People want to give comfort. People want to give aid. People want to give love and compassion. And as a parent, like suddenly that becomes your job. And so when your kid is like, I need my diaper changed, when your kid needs a bath, when your kid needs comfort, that's your job all of a sudden. And you realize, holy shit, like this was a part of me all along. And I needed this. I needed this, for lack of a better word, excuse to just be a human being. And it feels great. It feels great when you're finally able to do that and do it without apology, do it without self-consciousness, and don't feel yourself diminished in any way as a man because you're performing your job as a father. Well, you can apply that to the rest of your life. How good does it feel when you help somebody across the street? It feels fucking great. How good does it feel when you help somebody dig their car out of a snowbank? We're made to help other people. That's a big part of who we are.
2: Did it take becoming a dad to kind of figure that out? Or was this something that you were kind of already on the road to before?
3: A lot of things had to come together for me to just allow myself to be myself. A lot of it was becoming a dad. A lot of it was becoming a husband. A lot of it was just maturity. A lot of it was just learning how to open those doors that I had closed off to myself. And by the way, I'm still struggling with it every day. It's not work that like ends for me. It's stuff that I have to to work on all the time because, you know, my impulse is still, when I get upset, is to still shut off, become defensive, shut down, withdraw. I really have to work on saying, for example, I'm sorry. Those words are really, really hard for guys. I'm sorry because it requires a lot of vulnerability. And you have to admit your own infallibility as a guy, which isn't always easy.
2: I hope people remember you saw a lot of this manifest when there was a, a debate about paternity leave not too long ago. There were lots of Republicans who were basically saying it's unmanly. The, the very idea that, like, a dad would stay home and, and care for his infant child, right? Like, fellas, it's, it's gay to love your kid. You know what I mean? It's like, <laughs> you saw a lot of that, right? Like, it's like, this stuff is in the fabric of how we think about masculinity and gender roles and what it means to be a dad and what it means to be a mom. And these walls are ridiculous, but they're high and thick.
3: Mm-hmm. It's because so much of the way we think about manhood is wrapped up in... Our ability to produce, to produce capital, to exert labor, to make money. And anything that you do that would diminish that, even if it's for two weeks, so you can take care of your partner, so you can take care of your infant child, is unmanly because suddenly you're saying, I'm not going to make money for two weeks. I'm going to shirk my responsibilities on the job. I'm not going to provide for the company for those two weeks. And it's bullshit. Of course, it's bullshit. Your primary job as a guy is to be there for your loved ones. I mean, it's just so reductive and stupid. We're reductive and stupid. <laughs> we can be better.
2: I love the George Carlin quote that you mentioned. I just watched the HBO documentary by him where he says, that here's all you need to know about men and women. Women are crazy, men are stupid. And the main reason women are crazy is that men are stupid. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> good God, it's true then, it's true now.
3: Yeah. And I also go on to say, it's funny because we understand it, but it's also not true. I mean, we can be smart. We can do smart shit, you know? Men aren't stupid, but men feel trapped. And it's a stupid trap. And our role in the culture is to be stupid in a lot of ways. (laughs) I mean, you see it right now. We're talking about the guns and shit. Like The Republican stance is willfully, purposefully stupid because they would rather be stupid than admit that they were wrong or, and I think this is the deeper part, Gun ownership and guns, they have made so enmeshed with their particular brand of masculinity and their identity as Americans, that to contemplate giving them up is to contemplate in a very real way. I'm not making fun of them and I'm not even diminishing them in a very real way, is to give up some aspect of their masculinity. Because they have so tightly defined their masculinity to this object.
2: that's sort of the genius of that Carlin quote, right? He's almost sort of saying, like, women aren't actually crazy, but they appear that way to us because we're so drunk on our own (laughs) pathologies or whatever the (laughs) hell you want to call it. Yeah, I mean, I like the word you used a second ago, trapped right i mean so we have this very american conception of masculinity as like you know the rugged individual blazing his own path and mm-hmm. i agree with you that the very idea of anyone being truly self-made is preposterous if you think about it for just a second or two at the same time there is something valuable in preaching toughness and and self-reliance because life is hard and we will be tested. And there is a lot of pride and purpose to be had in living those values and affirming those values. So I guess maybe the question is, how do you not extinguish that altogether, but instead balance those virtues, and they can be virtues, balance those with the sort of healthy vulnerabilities that we're talking about here?
3: Yeah, I mean, I think you answered your own question. You don't extinguish it. There's no reason to eliminate individualism. You know, the world needs iconoclasts. The world needs mavericks. You need to be an iconoclast and a maverick in your own life at times. You need to forge your own path at times. You need to buck the system at times. We have identified Americanism as the rugged individual going off and forging his own path, and that has done great things for us. There are innumerable examples of americans in particular just sort of figuring shit out contemplating things in different ways and coming up with novel solutions like that's part of the american genius and we should celebrate that it doesn't mean that to do that you have to go live in a cave somewhere off-grid independent of all other people one of the images i always have in my head is of the lone gunman riding into town and shooting up the bad guys and receiving the thanks of the the town constable and getting the kiss on the cheek from the prettiest girl in town and them saying, hey, why don't you come and stay and be a part of our town? We'd love to have you. You could be an invaluable member of our community. And the lone gunman sort of looking at them and tipping his hat and riding away into the sunset. And we look at that lone gunman and go, oh, wow, what a great guy that is. But then in my head, there's always something funny and tragic about cutting to that guy like six hours later out there in the desert, sitting by himself around a campfire, eating a can of beans, just like looking off and being utterly alone in that landscape, utterly alone and lonely with nobody but his fucking horse to talk to and wondering like, what is it about that person that is so deeply broken that he can't accept the love of the community that he can't accept the invitation to become a part of something greater than himself. He has these valuable tools. He's shown his value and worth and nobody's asking him to give those up. They're saying, we want you and everything that you are to be a part of this community. And he's saying, nah, I'd rather just go eat my beans off by myself. And I just think to myself, that sucks. Like that's tragic for that guy. But that's the guy we celebrate.
2: We're going to take one last short break. When we come back, why can't a couple of guys talk to each other about their feelings, unless they're on a podcast? Support for The Gray Area comes from Bombas. How's your sock drawer looking these days? Underwhelming? Is it the seed of all your disappointments, a wasteland of unmatched sandpaper-rough foot sleeves? Well, this spring you can start looking forward to opening that sock drawer again with Bombas. Finally, I have something to look forward to. Bombas socks have all kinds of features like honeycomb arch support, anti-blister tabs, and cushioned footbeds. Bombas also sells clothes for other body parts like t-shirts and underwear. Also, Bombas wants to make returns and exchanges easy with their 100% happiness guarantee. So if the dryer or anything else eats a sock, or if you're unhappy with your purchase for virtually any reason, they say they'll do whatever they can to replace it or make it right. Bombas sent me a few pairs of socks a while back and they're my favorite socks. I'm literally wearing a pair right now. I know I'm supposed to say nice things here, but it's true. So there you go. You can get comfy this spring and get back with Bombas. Head over to bombas.com slash gray area and use code gray area for 20% off your first purchase. That's B-O-M-B-A-S dot com slash gray area and use code gray area at checkout.
1: In U.S. working forests or forest land carefully managed to provide a steady renewable supply of wood for daily use, more than one billion trees are planted every year and forestry experts protect and manage hundreds of millions of acres. Working forests have been sustainably managed for decades. How? It's simple. They plant more trees than they harvest. Learn more at WorkingForestsInitiative.com.
2: I wish our culture had more space for the sort of male friendship in particular Mm -hmm. that allows for this kind of emotional nudity. That's a weird phrase, but whatever. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? Like, we have all these ridiculous taboos around weakness. And I think they leave us with a very impoverished model of friendship, especially between men, where it's hard to be open to love without feeling like you're somehow broken or less than. Mm -hmm. I mean, hell, I just met you like 10 minutes ago, and, and we're talking about stuff here that, like, I don't ever talk or like most people don't ever talk with their male friends about, right? We just, you don't go there. You know, it's it's beer and ball games. Right. (laughs) Like that's the lane. That's the
3: extent of it, right? Yeah. Yeah. For my group of friends, for comedians, it's just jokes, just just shitting on things and dancing around difficult conversations, not exclusively, particularly as we've gotten older. I think we've gotten a little bit better at it, but for most of my life, and I think most male friendships are like that. It's not that they're superficial, they're not. Yeah, I don't mean that. I know, I know you don't. But for like women listening, for example, male friendship is often really deep but uncommunicative. You understand that you're there for that other guy, that you care about that other guy, that you would do anything for that other guy, but you would never say that. You would never express those words and he would never express those words to you. Women have the emotional space to do that in a way that guys don't it would be nice if we could figure out ways to carve out that emotional space so that men could have these conversations outside of podcasts.
2: (laughs) (laughs) How old is your son now? He's in college, right?
3: No, I have no idea.
2: (laughs) (laughs) He just turned 21. All right. He's a grown-ass man now. Yeah. He's a different generation than you and I. Do you see evolution here? Do you feel like you've been able to cultivate these ideals in him while also Kind of letting him be whoever the hell he is and wants to be. Do you see growth there, at least compared to yourself?
3: Well, sample size of one is not great, but I know he is more emotionally intelligent and available than I was at his age. That I think is true. I like to think that my wife and I played some role in that. I don't know. Generally speaking, What I see is his generation is maybe a little bit further along than my generation was. And my generation is further along than my dad's generation was. So, you know, maybe there's incremental progress happening. Like I said, this is generational work. It's going to take decades for us to really reap the benefits of these kinds of conversations. And I'm okay with that. I'm willing to put in that work. I hope my son's generation is willing to put in that work too, because we need to do it. But in the meantime, let's get rid of fucking guns. While that work is happening, let's get rid of some guns. And then, you know, maybe in 20, 30 years, we can reintroduce them. We could be like, okay, I think you you figured your shit out. You can have your AR-15 back.
2: (sighs) To kind of put a bow on this, I love what you say about your professional ambitions seeming so insignificant in the face of parenthood. That even if you became the greatest comic ever, or even if I became... Those famous journalists of my generation, what does that even mean, right? It means that like some kid in 50 years, like writes a shitty term paper about (laughs) you, you know, but who cares, (laughs) right? Like, exactly. But raising a decent, caring, courageous human being whose decency and kindness and courage will multiply and make the world a little better. That's a legacy. And I don't know, Michael, I, I hope we're doing that. And I hope this conversation is useful. For anyone out there trying to do the same thing,
3: yeah, I do too. I mean, I think this conversation, I hope, is one of 10 million conversations happening and that they will breed 100 million conversations after that. And in time, we'll get to a point where we're not opening a podcast with talking about the latest mass shooting. I want those events to become vanishingly rare, as opposed to what the trajectory that we're seeing, which is increasingly common. It is how I began thinking about this, as we said, with Sandy Hook. It was Parkland that made me sit down and write that book. And pretty much every conversation I have about the book could start with me and whatever interviewer I'm speaking with talking about the latest mass casualty event somewhere in America. But these conversations, I hope, flaccid though they may be in some respect when compared to the power of a gun, will ultimately prove to be the antidote.
2: I hope so, because I had to give my three year old boy, almost three year old boy a hug on his way out to daycare. Yeah. And they took everything I had to not crack up. And I know I'm not the only one felt like that the day after. Yeah again the book is a better man it is serious and thoughtful and intimate and honest it is funny you are funny but there's a lot more there than just jokes and i really appreciate you being here michael and black thank you oh my pleasure thanks for having me
3: and thanks for the thoughtful conversation and yeah let's just be one of 10 million conversations that are happening today right on
2: Vox Conversations is produced by Eric Janikis. Our editor is Amy Drozdovska. Patrick Boyd mixed and mastered this episode. Our theme music was dreamed up by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. And Amber Hall is the deputy editorial director of Vox Talk. If you like the show, let us know. Can we improve? We want to hear that too. We're curious to know what you think, what you want more of, what we could improve. And... If you have ideas for future guests or topics, send us your thoughts at Conversations at vox.com. And hey, if you did like this episode, please share it with your friends and rate and review. And join us Thursday for a brand new episode of Vox Conversations.
1: In U.S. working forests, or